0: Welcome to the show. My name is Michael Lin, and this is the MongoDB podcast. Thanks for joining us. Today on the show, Beamable CTO Ali Al-Ramul joins us, and we welcome back Nick Raboy, one of the original hosts of the podcast. Beamable is a company that accelerates the speed of game development and deployment by streamlining the process of building game server features like never before. We'll have a chat with Ali Al-Ramul, shortly. But before we get to that, I'd like to welcome Megan Grant and Shane McAllister back to the show. Megan, how are you?
1: Good. How are you?
0: Doing great. What's happening in the world of MongoDB?
1: If people want to head over to Developer Center, we had tons of new content go live last week. Uh, One of the articles that I personally loved was how to build an app with Python, Flask, and MongoDB to track UFO sightings in your your (laughs) own area, which I just thought was such a cool application of all these tools
0: it's a great mashup three of my favorite things python flask and ufos
1: yeah and i just i love when our writers take topics that are more complicated and technical in nature and they apply them to these really cool use cases so i really love that article uh we've got a bunch more we're talking about how to use the node.js MongoDB driver with aws lambda and we've also got a an article on real-time location tracking using MongoDB change streams and socket.io.
0: Fantastic. Well, we'll check
2: those things out. Head on over to the developer center. Shane, what's happening with you? Well, I'm intrigued to find out that UFOs are real. I'm, at, I'm assuming that's the case if we're writing articles about them in the developer center now. But speaking of sightings, um, the MongoDB people and the MongoDB user groups are out and about. So we have a number of those coming up as well To Megan. Where are they?
1: So we've got Mugs, which are the MongoDB user groups. Um, we've got one coming up in Dallas and Munich. There's also PHP UK, well, PHP UK, that's today. And I believe we've got uh, mm-hmm. one of our developer advocates, Joel, is there. And uh, Angular India coming up towards the end of the month. And I believe, Mike, there was something else you wanted to mention?
0: Yeah. So there, mm-hmm. speaking of mugs, there's going to be a mug in New York City, right at the headquarters of MongoDB. Uh, I happen to be the host of that event. So if you want more information, make sure you check the show notes. It's going to be March 2nd, and it's going to be after work. It's going to start right around 5 p.m., 5.30. You can swing by the MongoDB headquarters, grab a slice of pizza, sit down. And uh, I know that Anaya, our newest developer advocate, is going to be joining us and presenting several topics. So a really great night of MongoDB. March 2nd, check the show notes for details there.
2: So if you can't get out and about and see some of the MongoDB DB personnel we can also appear on YouTube on a small screen or big screen or any size screen near you so we have YouTube and YouTube shorts what's new there this week Megan
1: We do have a new short that we published last week from our developer advocate Mira on ECMAScript modules
2: Excellent and Mike did you make a new playlist today here I did yeah I've been hard
0: at work with Garudi Etienne we've been talking about scalability and resilience uh, as it relates to MongoDB and MongoDB Atlas, and we're on our fourth episode of that live stream. That's on YouTube, and I did create a playlist to make it easier for you to find, so head on over to YouTube and check out the MongoDB channel and uh, and click on the playlists.
2: Excellent. So Megan, finally, just before you jump away, where can we follow MongoDB on Dev2, and how do we... How, what do you want us to do there in terms of liking and commenting, etc?
1: So we have our Dev.2 articles. go; uh, They go live every Friday. And uh, we always love hearing from people in the comments. And also, if they want to join the um, community forums, uh, that's something you have to sign up for. But it's a wonderful community where people ask questions and provide feedback. And we also post the weekly updates there as well.
0: And that's a great place to head with questions as well. I just, I just visited this morning. I had some exciting news. My brother, John Lynn, is also a MongoDB enthusiast and a book author. He's written a brand new free ebook in coordination with the, the good folks at Studio 3T. It's a book focused on the MongoDB aggregation framework. It's a free book. You can download it. And once again, I'm going to direct you to go to the, to the show notes to get those links there. We're going to have plenty of, of links in the notes, so make sure you check those out. And with that, we'll get to the show. Stay tuned. Nick, good to see you again,
3: buddy. I know, Mike. It's been a good couple of years since I last appeared on this podcast with you.
0: <laughs> what have you been doing in the absence of, of being on the podcast?
3: A lot of videos, so technical tutorials for MongoDB, a lot of written content. Yeah. So just changing up the, the platform a little bit
0: as far as getting developer content out. Well, let's welcome our guest, Ali Al Ramul from Beamable. Why don't you introduce yourself to the audience and let folks know who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure.
4: So let me just start by saying, so in case you hadn't picked it up from my name, I'm actually originally from Morocco, but I live on the east coast of the United States. The only reason I mentioned that is because Morocco just beat Spain at the World Cup game, which was super (laughs) exciting. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that. So go Atlas Lions. Those of you who aren't soccer fans, which I am not, only once every four years. The role that I have at Beamable is a CTO. So that means I'm in charge of all technology and product initiatives. My background is of a computer science nature, cut code. I've built large distributed systems. I've been using Mongo for about a decade now through its early days of having to self host it. And today with Atlas, we've at Beamable, we basically, our mission is to fight for the game maker and to make it really easy for the dominant game business model, which is the free-to-play business business model, to be adopted by a very large number of of game developers. So being able to monetize your games after the fact, you know, be able to add leaderboards and tournaments. Things that make your game continuously operated, new content updates, new monetization, new offers, so forth and so on. So that's, that's what people is a live ops platform at that sense. Before that I shipped large licensed IP games, which I made, including a Game of Thrones game, a Star Trek game, a walking dead game, an archer game, a company called Disruptor Beam, which I was a founding engineer at. And before that I was a, a dedicated modder. Did a lot of modding in all kinds of games. So I started in game development actually early days of starcraft one modding and others so that's me in a nutshell
0: yeah so when you well thanks for that overview nick i just want to let folks know like so welcome to the show once again and for the folks just joining us we're we're going to be talking about the gaming industry i'm a little bit out of my element i am a developer but i have not developed games so so nick i'm gonna i'm gonna take a back seat that's all right. That's all right. Yeah, I was gonna ask a little bit more about your gaming uprising, Ali.
3: So you you modded some StarCraft stuff, you 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 worked for the studio and built a few games. What what kind of technologies were you using when you were building these games? It's a good question.
4: So in my professional game developer career, for the let's say quote unquote loosely, use the term front end here, for the client application that gets delivered to the end devices whether that's your pc or, or mobile phones we used game engines like unity but also we built a fully web game in the days of quote-unquote social games as they were called so the era of zynga got type of games we built a game for facebook canvas which is a pure web game html5 webgl and and then on the back end side ruby on rails with a mysql back end at that time and then um and then when we launched, built and launched our second game, we really didn't want to reinvent the wheel. And this, sort of, this was circa 2012, just so folks get a sense. Like that was when, you know, Supercell was just really sort of starting their meteoric rise with Heyday and Clash of Clans. And, and mobile was just getting started, right? So you had these massive featuring opportunities with Apple where, you know, she'd get featured and all of a sudden 2 million players would show up in your game, right? That, that rarely happens <laughs> these days, but... Uh, but that's what it was like back then so so at that time that was what i like to call the era of invention for live ops so if you were building a uh, live operated game that is a game that is continuously updated and continuously monetized in a service like uh, uh manner you were you were going to be um uh you're going to be building the game in a certain way uh, with commerce and merchandising systems with tournaments that keep the players engaged with rewards attached to those tournaments and there was no off-the-shelf components for this stuff. You had to basically build it yourself, hence the era of invention. Some amount of years later, you would get the era of engineering efficiencies, that is, or engineering optimizations. You get all these libraries that started cropping up that would cut down on the amount of time. And then Beavable, the era that Beavable showed up in, is the era that's creator-centric, right? So we want to be, we want to allow like an individual a developer, you know, who doesn't have a DevOps team, who doesn't have you know, these large infrastructure teams to be able to build these kinds of experiences. So, so to sort of bring it back to your question, the first game was WebGL HTML5 with a Ruby on Rails backend. The second game was a Unity engine game with a, uh, a Ruby on Rails backend, but also a generalized layer, which, which was our live, the beginnings of our LiveOps platform, which was coded in Java and Scala with a Mongo database as its, as its primary general purpose database.
3: Nice. And I do want to I do want to dig in deeper to that in in a minute though. I do have a few more questions of, based on stuff that you brought up. So you mentioned I I believe I heard you say live ops in there. Um yes. for for the the scenery where it's constantly changing, right? Is just so that way I can bring it to a level that I'm familiar with 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 modern gaming and stuff. Is that kind of in the sense of like I don't know if you play Fortnite at all where every they release seasons, right? They release release seasons where Basically, they introduce something new every time. Is that, is that the same thing as LiveOps or, or is it a different kind of definition? I just want clarity.
4: Yeah, that's exactly what it is. So again, games that sort of, you know, in the old days, games were basically shrink-wrapped and put on a shelf somewhere and you would show up at the store and you'd buy your game and, and, and then you would play the game and then move on, right? And that colored the entire business model of the game developers as well, right? They'd work on a game and then once they'd ship it, they essentially move on to the next game. But today, we live in the era where games last for a very, very long time. You know, Clash of Clans is 10 years old now, and it's still going strong. It's still being continuously updated, continuously monetized. So Fortnite is the same kind of thing. These games become living, breathing products that evolve and transcend the sort of classical product lifecycle definition. Uh, so yes, the seasons, the new content, upgrades to the engine, all of that stuff contributes to a LiveOps product. Just to put some numbers to it, today, games revenue is about $170 billion per year, roughly. And, and 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 the lion's share of that, the vast majority of that revenue, something well above 90%, is from games that are monetized after the fact. That is, you don't, you don't, you, you don't necessarily pay for them up front. You pay for items, skins, vanity items, whatever it may be in the game after the fact, and you are continuously monetized as a player does that make sense
3: yeah so games like overwatch or fortnite or or games where you're buying uh character outfits and stuff like that yeah. even though that the base rate of the game is free free to play you have legends but, yeah. yeah totally yeah exactly got, got it so you mentioned beamable being for creators right you shared your kind of gamer story with us and and how you got sort of there what what really opened up to the the creation of Beamable? Like, wh- what was that idea? What did it spawn out of?
4: Well, I think fundamentally, we just realized as we were, so when we were building games, games are tremendously difficult things to make, right? Not only do you have a, a technically sophisticated product, you know, you have a, you know, 3D game engine front end, or even if it's a 2D front end, it takes a lot of work to build those UIs and, and have them behave the way that you expect. Visual effects, sound effects, all of that stuff. So the client application you deliver to the devices is already very rich technically. Then there's a potential backend component, which is used to enable multiplayer functionality, competitive gameplay, which is very engaging, but also difficult to build. Now you're thinking, you know, building backend services, having a cloud account potentially, or Azure or whatnot, managing a database, making sure that everything is secure. So having a DevOps team, like all of that stuff requires a lot of effort. And even if you were to get both of those things right, your game might still not be fun, right? (laughs) So you have this sort of immaterial aspect of the game has to be super fun. It requires technical chops that are very advanced on the front end and technical chops that are very advanced on the back end, right? So so support of what people... And so what that means is that your, your teams, your game teams become very large. And as anybody who's worked on large teams will tell you, you know, once you end the, enter that phase of like consensus-based decision making, you're almost to right. Like, it becomes really hard to a- achieve any kind of agreement. There's organizational organizational barriers that get erected. There's communication barriers that are born. And you know, the most fun some of the biggest upsets we've seen in games have been these really small teams of like two to three, four or five people. Who built this incredible experience, and all of a sudden overnight, it's a, it's an incredible success. It, even within large companies, right? A Hearthstone was built by a team of I think like seven people, seven to fifteen people. And that was within a behemoth of a company using a relatively new engine at the time, which was Unity. So that was a completely different way of approaching game development to go from these very large multi-year waterfall product development cycles to these very small teams that are incredibly agile. So in order to preserve that agility, we want to do away with all of the complexity of the distributed systems and all of the complexity that sort of stands in your way to build a ops product.
3: So, so you mentioned that, uh, at least from your own personal ex- past and experience, as uh, not only just a, a game developer who used Unity and, and WebGL, but you also mentioned Ruby on Rails as a backend. Beamable, it sounds like Beamable does a whole lot. Who who exactly is it targeting from from the developer spectrum? Like, uh, there's a lot that goes into game development. There's backend engineers. There's there's the people who actually ship the the game that you play. Who who is the targeted audience for Beamable exactly?
4: Yeah, it's a great question. I would say that um, that's a there's a, the simple answer is the small and medium sized developers first and foremost because they are least likely to have the resources to build this kind of platform themselves
3: right which game developers exactly though like the the there's a whole there's a whole spectrum of uh, that encompasses the game developer right not just the visual aspect of it yeah is it everyone
4: well it's basically everyone so uh, i mean i can it's maybe not the sound designer i'll put it that way but like you know anybody who's who's designing uh, uh, Metagame systems, right you know economies, game economies, virtual economies, items, currencies, so forth and so on. anybody who's participating in the design of 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 balance content, right like how much damage a character does what what items exist in the game, what are the bosses and so forth and so on back the the role that would be classically a, a backend developer, somebody implementing multiplayer systems or competitive systems, so it's actually a quite a large cross section. And we also have drag and drop prefabs. So like fully actualized UIs that you can pull into your game. So even UI designers have something for them. So it's a pretty broad swath of, of, of the game development team. Does that, does that make sense, Nick?
3: It does. Sorry, I, I accidentally yeah. muted myself.
4: That's <laughs> all good. And, and, uh, and, and sort of to just elaborate on that answer just a little bit more, it's, almost, it's also in some ways kind of asking like, who is AWS for? when we talk about the size of the game developer. Like at one point you had the Activision Blizzards of the world were like, well, we don't need AWS. Like we have our own data centers. Like why would we need hmm. to use it? But over time you come to realize that it's just not worth your time to be spending a whole lot of engineering resources and energy and mindshare reinventing what is essentially undifferentiated work, right? It's not the thing that makes... You know, having data centers is not what makes Blizzard special, right? Or Activision or whomever, right? What makes them special is their game. So part of what we're in the business of doing is, is removing that undifferentiated heavy lifting, So that you can focus on your key differentiator, which is the fun aspect of your game. Yeah.
0: So to begin using Beamable, what does somebody need to know? And, and what are the kind of environmental constraints? Yeah,
4: so good question. We... Um, so we have we have a a package for Unity which is readily available. You can download it from the Unity Asset Store. We're a ver- verified solutions partner, and and you just go inside of Unity. You open up the Package Manager, and uh, and you can install us from there, or go to the Beamville website, or go to the Unity Asset Store. Uh, then there's we're actually working on an Unreal SDK right now, uh, which is on GitHub on our uh, public GitHub, which uh, Unreal developers can start experimenting with and give us feedback, and then. We've also had situations where uh, people are building their own game engines or have a custom game engine in C++ or, or, or are using a game engine we don't explicitly have a package for. And so we have actually a, uh, an open API spec that is a definition of all of Beamable's APIs published on our, on our docs website. So you can actually invoke our APIs for all the backend services uh, directly uh, from via uh, HTTP web requests. And you can also generate, because that Open API spec is public, you can also generate your own SDK in whatever language you choose.
0: And what are some of the real common features that right out of the gate, people are going to be, be looking to use from Beamable, like a, a leaderboard? Like what are, what are some of the really key features?
4: Yeah, so a lot of people love uh, pulling in leaderboards first, the uh, commerce offers. We also see a lot of people love using our content system. Content mm. is just sort of the ability to deliver new content over the wire. So you don't have to force. And we've all seen those annoying update prompts. Like you can't use the app anymore. Go to go and update the app, right? Like part of avoiding, the, every, anytime you throw that kind of prompt in front of players, some percentage of those players will never show up to your game again, right? They will essentially churn. So, being able to update content over the wire is 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 of paramount importance, uh, and it's also important in the case of bugs. If you were to release some content with a bug, be able to update it over the wire is super important. So, mm. our content system is very popular, and then we also have a whole identity system to so that players can manage their account, Facebook login, Google login, sign in with Apple. Uh, you could drag and drop a prefab into your game, and you basically have that functionality. And it's GDPR compatible. If players want to forget their accounts, they can do that. And that's that's just a lot of game developers find that super useful because nobody gets into games to implement login with Apple, right? Like it's just not the priority. So being able to provide that functionality out of the box is it just helps developers focus on on what really matters to their games.
3: In, yeah. in regards to the content uh, management system uh, stuff that, you, that you're doing in there, I think that's what you called it or something similar. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you, Mike. Is it the assets that they're able to ship over the wire is it just like multimedia assets, or do you actually get to make revisions to your code and have that applied in in real time? I guess the limitation
4: question. yeah, good question so uh we do not allow code updates, and that's not really a limitation on our side so much as it's a limitation oftentimes a of the game engine because a lot of the client code is. Uh, is actually at the game engine level, but also it's a limitation of the app, of the app stores themselves often do not like the idea of code changing within clients. Uh, And that's because malicious code could be injected over the wire and it could uh, skip over the approval processes that app store curators, such as Apple really do care about. So, uh, you can't do it with uh, code. Uh, you can deliver over the wire any kind of structured data, such as some kind of a JSON-compatible data, any kind of object data. And uh, and we have support for multimedia files, but think of 3D meshes, audio files, et cetera, but it's not currently, uh, let's say it's in preview right now. It's not something that we have made uh, public yet.
0: Okay, so I'm a, I'm a game developer. I want to... I wanna get what I'm working on out to the world. I wanna incorporate some of these great features that you're talking about. What's it gonna cost me to incorporate those features from from Beamable?
4: Yeah, it's a great question. I will just refer you to our pricing website. Uh, <laughs> <go to> <laughs> but there's a free right tier, right? There is a free tier. Yeah, yeah. right on. So, uh, Unlike some of the other companies in this space, we actually allow you to download Beamable and just try it right away. You don't need to talk to us. You don't need to reach mm. us, pick up the phone. You don't need to email us. Just go to the unity asset store or go to our website, download the package you can start using it right away and you could and for as long as you're in development, you can use it for free. there are a couple of constraints there uh certain services that do cost money once you use more than a certain amount then you know we will ask you to pay but uh but the the tiers uh, are fairly gradual so
0: and and hopefully by reducing the overhead associated with implementing and maintaining those things they'll they'll see value right away so I'm curious about your use of MongoDB. How early on in the development stage of, of Beamable did you start using MongoDB? And then I want to ask you also about the features that you're using from the MongoDB Atlas platform.
4: Oh, sure. Yeah. We've been using Mongo Atlas from day one at Beamable. And uh and Atlas has been awesome. I mean, I can say that with a lot of confidence, and this is not like any kind of advertisement or anything like that. I, I can say it because we've been using Mongo since Wired Tiger was first released, and since before Wired Tiger was released, and, and we operated large sharded Mongo clusters. And it was, it was challenging, right? Like operating databases at scale is very challenging. Uh, updating the database to a new version is, is, is nerve wracking, right? Because if you do something wrong, your database is down, your players can't play the game, right? So uh, Atlas made all of that trivial and made it something that we never had to think about. So case updates, failover events happen transparently with zero downtime without any latency spikes. Mongo Atlas introduced the ability to adopt new features very readily and easily. In terms of the kinds of features we use, we've been using uh, the replica sets, the regular replica sets. We've used sharded clusters. We operate a large sharded cluster. Uh, We also have used Mongo Atlas charts. Uh, we've used a lot of the, uh, we haven't used any of the data lake uh, functionality yet, but we plan to use the Lucene tech search index capabilities, which is super cool. Uh, we use a lot of the engine functionality, the sort of deep sort of database stuff. And, uh, and we are very excited by the serverless offering, which we'd like to make greater use of and also offer to viewable customers as a plug and play solution to the microservices functionality we provide, which is a mm. serverless cloud
3: code solution. I do want to ask about those, those microservices in just a second, but I want to ask a question about your Atlas uh, usage. Since So you said you used Atlas from day one, and now you're a pretty successful company, and you've got a lot of gaming customers doing a, a whole heck of a lot on your service. What's, what's your scaling story like for that? I mean, I assume that you wouldn't have needed much from day one, but uh, now you probably are using a lot more. Let's say that. <laughs> Um, what did that look like? Yeah. So I mean,
4: uh, it's a great question. It's not a simple answer, but I would say, you know, I think we've we have kind of two flavors of deployments. Uh we have dedicated deployments. We have certain customers that come to us and say, I don't want to share, right? Like I just wanna I want my own dedicated Mongo cluster and I want you to manage it for me. And we're happy to do that. Uh, and then we have other customers that are like, "Don't talk to me about Mongo. I don't want to know about any of that stuff. I'm happy with a multi-tenanted solution. I just want to focus on my game." And so we provide we the default is a multi-tenanted, sharded Mongo cluster, and so we have all kinds of auto-scaling rules and monitoring uh, on it to make sure that uh, as high watermarks are reached, either the cluster automatically scales vertically, or or uh, we get notified that we're reaching some kind of high watermark, And so there's a whole bunch of institutional operational knowledge that we've developed uh, to be really good at this, right? And, and anticipate when we need to add another shard versus uh, vertically scale, when we should increase the log size, when we should incl- increase the disk size. What's the best bang for the buck, right? Sometimes provisioning IOPS is a better option. Other times it's really not. You just want to increase, increase your disk size when uh, because it gives you more IOPS by default. So there's a lot of variables that are inherent to database operations and these are things that we've first learned Uh, the team that built viewable uh also built a lot of large scale games seen over 20 million players come through it uh, through them we've just developed a lot of institutional know know know-how
3: so to add to that so you you mentioned serverless i didn't catch if it was if you were referring to serverless functions or serverless instances but where my question is going is say you're chugging along doing what you're doing right now you end up with this kind of unicorn game that that releases on your with your platform and it just it it requires such a high demand on your beamables resources like what what do you have in place to be able to accommodate that do you use any kind of automatic scaling do you use the serverless instances like what does that look like
4: yeah, so basically, think of it this way. There's uh, there's the set of Beable managed services. So these are services that Beable has written and we provide an API to, to them, right? These include inventory, tournaments, events, and many, many more, right? And these have all been assiduously optimized to make the best, most efficient, most performance uh, in, of Mongo. And there is also a distributed actor system that we built in-house, which means that reads are you know, read from in-memory, which makes for very fast reads and of course we use mongo in a way so that the writes are super fast as well so to so to, so all of our all of these managed services have auto, auto, uh, auto scaling rules they elastically scale no single points of failure and then they'll just you know add capacity elastically based off of the throughput. Hmm. then there is uh, there is mongo itself which is fortunately unlike many databases has sharding functionality which means you can horizontally scale mongo as well and we've designed all of these managed services to make use of the sharded functionality. So they all have properly defined shard keys that can be ver- horizontally distributed in any way that doesn't create hotspots and so forth and so on. And then lastly, there's the custom code that our customers sometimes come to us and say, well, I want, I want to write some server code and I don't want to host it on my own accounts. I want you to host it for me. And in such cases, that's we have a serverless offering called C-sharp microservices that allows them to write. Server code inside of Unity, inside of the game engine, hit a publish button, which sends that code to Beamable, and then gets scheduled in a container, which gets automatic auto-scaling rules to it as well. So the, all all along the stack, there are there's automatic scaling, uh, and, and in situations where you know automatic scaling may be, let's say, uh, less desirable, such as the database layer, we have all kinds of monitors and, and a team in place to to make sure that that's. Uh, The scaling is cost efficient.
3: Because I want to nerd out for a second here. You mentioned the microservices uh, a few times now. I'm I'm curious to learn more about those. Uh, So are you, so you said you could develop these microservices directly within the Unity editor. Yeah. Uh, To to what scale? Do you get the full scope of uh, .NET in them? I mean, or is there local testing capabilities uh, for your service? you want to go into more detail about that, how that works? Totally.
4: So, first and foremost, I'll just mention that we do have a white paper on this topic that goes in pretty uh, deep detail. If you just go to the Beamable website, uh, go t- download the technical white paper if you want all the details. But the it's a it's a system we're very proud of, and it's one that we've developed really from our experience as game developers. So, when you go to when you want to write cloud when you want to write server code today, and and you're oftentimes you're in one of two situations: you either have to sort of develop your own stack, right? Pick a Ruby on Rails or Node.js or whatever, and then spin it up in an AWS account and set up load balancers and subnets and security groups and all of that fun stuff, Uh, except it's not fun, right? And nobody wants to do that, especially when you're on a deadline trying to ship a game. Then you have sort of the other side of the equation, which is a bunch of lambdas and cloud script. And so oftentimes you're pigeonholed into a, a specific programming language like JavaScript or TypeScript, and you're coding in a browser way. Right. There's literally company uh, companies out there that do similar things to us They're coding in a browser uh, browser window. And that, that that's problematic because you don't have you don't have proper debugging. You can't, you know, have your code live side by side with your client's code. Uh, tests are a lot harder to write. It's just a workflow nightmare. And that's a word I haven't mentioned yet, but workflow is a key differentiator for Beavahole. We want to make sure that the workflows work for the game developers. So the reason we brought this experience inside of Unity is because that's where the game developers live. They want to be inside of this game engine window. They're writing all their client code and they want to be able to debug up and down the stack. So when you go inside of Unity and you install the Beavahole package, you'll get a little window that says, this is your microservice manager. Do you want to create a microservice? Click Yes. And we basically automatically install a container image on your computer. You can run this application locally. You can debug it in the same IDE as you're debugging your client's code. So you can literally have a, you know two slices of code, one that's your C Sharp Microservice server code with the entire range of .NET and the other one that is your Unity uh, C Sharp uh, flavor code and have breakpoints in each and as you run your Unity, when you hit play in the Unity editor window to preview your game, it will actually break points on both sides. And so that up and down the stack debugging is extremely powerful. Your code lives side by side. You can share serialization structures between your clients and your server. You don't have to redefine things in multiple times in multiple programming languages, and you can really reduce the sort of degree of specialization that you need within your game developer team. Does that make sense?
0: Wow. Yeah, I'm, I'm just blown away at the coverage. Like you've really thought about this and, and it's clear that you've got a great deal of real world experience developing games yourself. I'm, I'm curious about the future. Like what's coming down the pike? What's exciting for you in the game industry?
4: Uh, so that's a wonderful
0: question. I'm a lifelong gamer. I
4: love playing games. I love making games. I love building technology mm-hmm. for games. I'm super excited by the fact that it's just the beginning. Uh, we're still seeing double digit growth In the games industry, you know, uh, we're seeing a massive increase in not just the amount of revenue generated by games, which means more game developers enter the fray, more creativity is entering the fray, but we're also seeing just far more people who uh, 10 years ago didn't identify as gamers enter the fray. 50 year old moms playing their games and now consider themselves gamers playing with multi-generational games And, and demographically a more even distribution where you have a lot more women playing games, like 50% now, which means that you get a richer confluence of different games, more interesting Mm. experiences. Uh, I was just playing It Takes Two with my wife uh, a week ago or a couple of weeks ago during Thanksgiving. It was incredibly fun and type of experience that, you know, really didn't exist 15 years ago or so. So uh, so number one, I'm excited about that, right? Just the the degree of inclusiveness that we're seeing in game, which is spawning a lot of creativity. Uh, and then I think I would say from a, from a sort of the game developer in me, I'm also super excited by the era of creativity uh, that we're entering. You know, it used to be that, you know, games, again, somebody who grew up abroad, it used to be that games was the purview of a very small number of companies, usually quite large companies or small studios that are essentially owned by very large publishers in a small handful of countries, right? United States, Japan, and you know, so forth. Uh, but today it's a truly international field. You're seeing uh, game companies getting acquired in Turkey for billions of dollars. You're seeing you know with some of the top game developers in the world or in small Scandinavian countries right small populations so uh so you're seeing this highly this this bursting of creativity as well as this uh this growth that is including more countries, more people, uh, more types of games, and uh, and it's only the beginning because now you even have very small teams, teams of one to five people, building games that could become blockbusters, right? With the advent of the app stores, the distribution problem has essentially been solved to a large degree. So that's all very very exciting to me. And the part that uh, I'm hoping that we can do when we talk about fighting for the game maker at Beamable, what we really care about is allowing you know the small Allowing these sort of the Davids to really take on the Goliath, mm. right? Like allowing the small one to three, four or five person teams to build experiences that, you know, are unhindered by resort the need for very large resources or very large teams, right? So uh, mm. and I think Roblox, this is a trend we've seen sort of across the board, right? Like that that ability, you've seen it now with the AI generated arts, right? You see it in... You know, in the way that uh, that Stripe and Shopify have enabled you know individuals to sell things online in ways that were unprecedented twenty years ago. So that's what I'm excited about. In some ways, the democratization of the creative endeavor to an yeah. ever gra- a grand, greater, and ever more diverse body of creators.
3: Yeah. I love that. that you mentioned a lot about these indie, indie studios, and I, I I agree with you. There's they're resonating with me. Like think of like, uh, and I'm sure you've probably played or at least heard of some of these games like stardew valley like
1: totally, i think that was course. that
3: was one it. guy one single guy exactly. made made this game that probably made millions of dollars you got celeste you've got hollow Knight, you got all these small small studios that are making killings on uh, console and steam and things like that it's it's amazing what, what people are accomplishing right now
4: yeah, and a whole platform like Roblox, which has also enabled this like, across all ages, right? Like,
0: yeah, it's, it's
4: truly incredible and, and, and inspiring. And I want to see more of that, and I want to be part of that,
0: right? Yeah, well, I, I certainly think you are. I, 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 we're just about out of time, but I want to ask you, you know, the seed of creation, the, the seed of, uh, of a great game. I mean, some really fascinating games are coming across, like just things that you don't even think are games, but they, but they are where does that come from for you? It's, you know, Joseph Campbell came up with this idea that there's a hero with a thousand faces. There are like 12 different phases for every uh, myth that has been created and kind of mapped out every story that's ever been told. And I'm wondering, I mean, do, do you think we'll ever get to the end of game creation? Or how do you, how do you continue to innovate? How do you continue to create something interesting and, and where does yes, that see It's come a good from? question.
4: Yeah. It's it's a good question. I mean it's almost like asking like, will we ever get to the end of art? Right. I think that the, the biggest threat that I see to that, and it's not really a threat. It's it's more like just the next sort of step in, in in human progress is AI, frankly. Like when you go to so I don't know if you guys have been seeing like some of the GPT three point five yeah. open open chat bot like that it's, it's crazy. Like, uh, our CEO, John Radoff, has a pretty cool uh, blog post where he literally generated a MUD game inside of GP3, like Zork type of game, literally through a prompt. And he just basically <laughs> put in a prompt and said, Hey, AI, pretend, never go out of character, pretend you're the game, and I'm going to play a text based game. And it generated the game. He was literally Love playing in this chat. So, like, when does that become not, not, of course, MUDs were like 30 years ago now, but when, nice. is, when does that go from being sort of the ability to generate a MUD, to be able to generate a a full-on game experience. And I don't think it's that far off, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's maybe another 10 years at most. Uh, With GPT-4 on the horizon in 2023, we'll see what that looks like. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't really think that there's necessarily an end to it. I think it will continue and continue. The tools will just change, but it'll be interesting to see how AI changes the landscape there.
0: Yeah. Well, Ali, thank you so much for joining us today. Is there anything else you'd like folks to know about Beamable, about yourself? I would say
4: check out our Discord, come hang out with us, whether you're making a game or not, like we're always happy to hear about your experiences. If you are making a game, come join us, tell us about your game. Uh, if you need a live LiveOps backend, try out Beamable, let us know your thoughts. Like we consider ourselves first and foremost game developers. We're we doing, we're building Beamable because... We saw a gap, and at some point, everybody expects that we'll go back to making games. At least some of us will move on and make games. And we wanted to create Beamable first so that we would have this tool chain uh, for when we go back to doing that.
3: So, uh, so come say
0: hello. Nick, anything further?
3: No, I, I love the conversation today. This is great. The links for Discord and etc. Will, will probably show up in the show notes, right, Mike?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Good stuff. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day.